coming out on such a beautiful, beautiful evening. It's half night, half price night at Funtastic, so I'm surprised any of you were here. I thought that was going to crush me, but so thanks in particular for coming out. Apparently not a lot of audience overlap. Um, uh, this is the, the last lecture of, of, for this year. It was going to be Arabic. And um, I want to thank uh, Milo and Kevin who have been helping out, and Maggie and uh, Anna at Peninsula College, and Peninsula College and the Peninsula College Foundation who make this whole thing possible. And of course, all you folks for showing up regularly. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Arabic. Um, hopefully, you were here last month for Persian because they sort of they have this collision that's coming. You can see it coming from far away. So brace yourselves. The collision Arabic-Persian thing is, is on its way. But I want to start with this consideration of an issue that's come up several times. And this is, you know, why when you consider the, the there's about 400 to 450 million Arabic speakers, it is truly one of the great literary scientific, mathematical languages in the world, um, huge, vast pool of poetry, almost entirely untranslated and unknown in English. You know, sort of, a part of this can be ascribed to our aggressive monolingualism. I mean, we are, we are not going to learn other languages. You can't make us. We have a huge military that guarantees that one fact. This is apparently the principle on which our country was founded. It was, we will not speak other languages. You cannot make us under any circumstances. Um, but Arabic, I think it's, it takes, it's worth pausing and reflecting uh, on this subject because it is important to many of the things that we've discussed. But particularly in the world today, one of the most dynamic, influential cultures in the world today is the culture of the Arabic language. Uh, so it's vast in its region. If you, if you look at this map, it's called uh, the Dar al-Islam. This is, uh, that's the house of Islam, the abode of Islam, if you will. Um, that's it for around 1750. Now, 1750 was not the greatest extent that Islam ever ever reached. I mean, it was over in, in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain, of course. Um, it, it was further, basically, in every direction on the map, there was more. But the, the sort of the house of Islam, where, where the Islamic culture and the Arabic language has been most influential and is still most influential today, uh, you get a good representation of this on the map. Um, if you know a thousand and one nights, this is this is the Arabian Nights. This is probably the single most uh, known work from from the Arabic tradition, which is great, wonderful, uh, incredible work. I think it's too little read in its entirety, or at least in, in its sections. We mostly know Sinbad, uh, the sailor, it was a great, you know great stories there. And so I pondered this why, and I think several reasons that, that work not just for Arabic but for Persian and a few other languages, um, why, why we aren't more familiar. And one is Arabic is primarily, its literature, poetry. And we're going to see, uh, when we look at some of the poetry that I've put on the back, that this is virtually, not virtually, it is untranslatable. You cannot render Arabic poetry into English totally impossible. And so what you get are very uninspiring, weak, uh, tepid versions of what in the Arabic, and, and Persian suffers similarly, are powerful, moving, evocative, emotionally fulfilling works. And so when we get them, they're just sort of dead on the page. Um, by the way, this is not just true for Persian Arabic. I mean, it's a similar problem with Goethe, for instance, in Germany. 
Uh, in, in Germany, Goethe is the man. I mean, he is the poet par excellence. He is the writer. They, they give a Goethe prize, which means, wow, you can really write. Um, and in English, he's like, eh. I mean, he's this great, everybody thinks of him as being great, but when you read him, it's hard to really think of him as being great. You're like, why does everybody think he's so great? Um, but in German, if you read him in German, it's, it, it's completely different. Some is authors just bad translation. No, something. We're going to talk about why this is not just bad translation. Although this is a problem too. We will we will look at specifically in Arabic why you can't. And Persian is similar. Um, we'll talk about why it's extraordinarily difficult at best, but really impossible. So that's one issue. Um, I think a, a second issue is. When you move from the poetic to the prose uh, writings, the, the less um, classically poetic forms, although there's a lot of poetry even in their prose, uh, the calligraphy was important. And so the beauty of the page right, then gets lost. So even works like, like Ibn Khaldun that we'll talk about that, that are, 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 are lovely, amazing to read in translation, lose a lot because we don't get some of the calligraphic tradition that presented not just a well-written, clearly argued, nice story, history, math, but the beauty of the page, which was admired. And particularly in the Islamic tradition, where you weren't supposed to make representations of lots of things, um, they amplified and emphasized the beauty of the language, of the written language itself, because they admired the language, it's always key, or not admired, they do admire the language to this day, very attached to it as a literary form. Three, for us it's quite difficult because the Arab language world has not gone through an enlightenment the way the Western world has. If anything else, you can think like this, as if the Counter-Reformation won in, in the Arabic world. They're uh, so, still so heavily influenced by uh, the Quran, it's full stop. It is the touchstone for both form, subject, approach. And when they argue about things, primarily they're arguing about within the context of, of the Islamic tradition. And so when in the, in the 16th and 17th and 18th century we fought both literal wars and many intellectual wars to liberate or to extract that tradition from our literature, now going back we find it kind of stultifying, odd, um, bizarre in places to see how heavy that hand is still on the literary tradition. Um, it's much like if you've ever tried to go, go back and read the medieval philosophers. You know, after a while, you're just going, okay, these guys are bright, they're very intelligent, they do great research, but, I mean, just the huge blockages in their thinking are so overwhelming uh, that you, at that point you just want to pitch them, right? It's not that they weren't stupid people, they were just, you know, they had the particular worldview that we no longer feel is natural or acceptable or uh, easy to um, cohabitate with. And so this is also a problem. Um, most importantly, though, I think it may be above all of those is we're simply totally disinterested and ignorant of our own cultural heritage. This is what I, I, I keep coming back to, right? Uh, uh, much, much uh, that, is, that we identify as coming from the West really comes from the Islamic tradition. Um, and you see this particularly in, in, in the language of science, where algebra, uh, of course, that, that term is from Arabic, and alembic, 
many of the technical things that you use in science come from Arabic terms. Why do they come from Arabic terms? Because they were hugely influential in advancing the mathematical, medical, optical sciences um, at a period when the Western world was not doing very much work in that. We were, we were sort of having a, a bit of a bonfire. Uh, so, it, you know, that, 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 that heritage is so strong, we've lost a sense of that. So this is very, it's very interesting and still influential in the world, though, this, this our sort of profound ignorance uh, of, of, again, one of the richest literary traditions in the world, truly spectacular, I mean, overwhelming in some ways. So now we have to go back in time. You see the little timeline there. 400 BC, Greek references to Arab traders. So the Arabs were known to exist all over the ancient world, and they traveled broadly. We know this in part because there's uh, Arabic influence on Swahili, of all things, which means there had to be a long confluence of trade between Arabia and the African coast. And because Swahili was sort of the lingua franca of, of the whole regions of Africa, we can track sort of the coast inward uh, as, as the Arabic influence dies the further you would get away from the trading coasts. And so we know the Arabs were trading for at least since 400 BC. Um, but the first written work, more or less in Arabic, is the Quran a thousand years later. No one knows why. This is, this is uh, one of the great French translators of Arabic literature. And by the way, most good translations of Arabic literature is into French. So if you want to read Arabic literature, either learn Arabic or French. Uh, there's, there's your choices. Uh, there are great, great, great uh, um, Arabic translators in the French. Germans too, but the uh, French um, doing a better job. I think French is uh, better for translating Arabic. Um, but he asked this question in his work he did in the 1880s, um, where he's translating Edmund Khaldun and one of the poets who we're going to read. And he said, this is one of the great unknown questions. Why would a culture that they're, they're trading, they have, they're all over the ancient world. There are all kinds of references to them, not just in the Greeks. The Greeks are the most ones we know the best. Um, they're influencing other languages for a thousand years, and they basically didn't bother to write anything down. They didn't really develop a forward. There's a few texts, a few engravings here and there, but considering they'd been around and cohesive and wealthy, relatively speaking, to the ancient world, for a thousand years, why? Nobody knows. People speculate that it was perhaps because they spent so much time in the desert. Books, yeah, not so much. Heavy, they get filled with sand, expensive. No, you want to carry water, not books, right? <laughs> and so they emphasized uh, hugely, again, the oral tradition of poetry. This is why poetry in Arabic, Arabic equals poetry, poetry equals Arabic in some ways. Um, but this, you know, so it's this like thousand year oral tradition, remarkably strong, great poets. Uh, they were, uh, you were celebrated in your tribe if you were a poet, and they had sort of poetry competitions when the various groups would get together. And if, and if you could win uh, these recitation contests for your people while you were a great champion, this was like being a warrior. This was one of the, to, to speak well and, and ride a camel and wield a sword. This is what life was about. But the speaking well um, was, was uh, central, huge, hugely important. And so you get this huge gap of a thousand years. But it's important to remember that this culture is there, it is coherent, and it's influencing the cultures around it. 
Uh, Arabic, we know, was in, in influenced, by the way, by Phoenician. Uh, they adopt a version of the Phoenician alphabet when they start writing. And so they've been around for, you know, again, a, a good millennia by the time they write anything down. But that's also sort of a tabula rasa. It's hard to say a lot about what was going on then because they didn't write anything down. <laughs> or at least nothing that survived. But, but a few pages, I mean, literally like 12 or, or 10 or 12 pages of written material uh, prior to this. So there's a little bit evidence that there was more, not much. And then... If you go over 570, 632, the life of Muhammad. This is the beginning of written Arabic, the Quran. One of the most extraordinary events, without a doubt, in world history and certainly literary history. A culture that basically had no books. Not basically. A culture that had no books. Um, Muhammad, a merchant, born in Mecca, dies in Medina, dictates, um, illiterate by the way, this is important to note also, uh, Muhammad was, was illiterate by the tradition, dictates the Quran, which is uh, God's word. It's not God's word in the word way that we think of the Bible as being perhaps divinely inspired. It was not divinely inspired. The Quran pre-exists the universe. It is that which is. So, so Muhammad did not write it. He simply embodied it for us. This is in the Arabic tradition to understand this. One way to think of Islam is it is the worship of the Quran. This is a very significant. Um, we, we're attached to books. We are not that attached to books. This is, it, 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 this is central. Like I said, it, you cannot overemphasize the influence of the Quran because it is seen as sort of, a, if you think of it as an instantiation of Allah himself, that's probably the closest you can get. Although in part, there is religious Islamic theory that the, that the Quran predates the existence of God. It is the first thing. And that God really comes out of the Quran in, in a way, right? So, so that the, the Quran is central and crucial. Uh, my Arabic does not allow me to make this judgment, but... Everybody who can read Arabic, and, and this is scholars since the, the writing of, of, of the Quran, attest to its central beauty. They say to read the Quran is to read one of the greatest works ever written, period. And part of the power of Islam is simply that there's this book that everybody who can read it says, or, or who has it recited to them, it just, it just amazes them. It just blows them away. It's sort of a combination as if like it was Shakespeare and you know the King James Bible kind of folded into one. It, it's not just the content that's important in the Quran. It is the, the, the stunning, overwhelming beauty of its construction. And this is attested to since its inception. Um, so we have, we have to get that right. And so if we flip over... Uh, we can look at some horrible translations of the Quran. Uh, I, I apologize for that, but what can we do? Um, now, you're not actually supposed to even translate the Quran out of Arabic because from very early days they recognized that it's just not going to trans it's not going to be as beautiful. And the Quran, if you've ever tried to read it, is a strange work. 
It shifts from something, have some beautiful poetry, then a couple of quick laws, and then some history, and then a visit from the angel Gabriel, and then a few quick laws, and then a long section of poetry, and then some history. I mean, the Old and New Testament are not particularly coherent texts, but wow, compared to the Quran, they're incredibly coherent. As far as the narrative goes, the Quran doesn't really have a narrative. It has many passages on different vast array of subjects presented in no clear order, uh, but, it, but beautifully. That's it. it really over, forget order, we like beauty, I think is one way to think about it. Um, so this is just uh, three sections, just to give you a flavor of the different kinds of things, uh, passages that occur. First, uh, uh, in the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful, all readings of the Quran begin with that. All praises due to Allah, the Lord of the world, the beneficent, the merciful, master of the day of judgment. Thee do we serve and thee do we beseech for help. Keep us on the right path, the path of those upon whom thou hast bestowed favors, not the path of those upon whom thy wrath is brought down, not of those who go astray. This is the opening of the Quran. In a polytheistic world, which Islam is born in, this is a, this is a very big statement. Also the notion that there is a divine God out there that's going to punish you or reward you is not universally accepted. If you think of the Greek gods who are sort of, you're always negotiating, they're sort of crazy, right? <laughs> Most polytheistic religions tend to emphasize the, the, the gods are sort of nuts and you, you, you hope they don't do bad things to you, but they probably are anyway, but just in case they won't, here's a sacrifice, right? That's the sort of polytheism. Um, what, what uh, Muhammad put down, what we get in the Quran is this, no, this is not random. This is sensible, logical, and it's all run by Allah. He is merciful, he helps the good, he damages the bad. He's, he's there. It's all about Allah. And, and he, again, in our world, this seems sort of like, you know, some version of Christianity, which it is in a way. Uh, people of the book, as it's called in the Quran, Christianity and Judaism, and Zoroastrianism, by the way, um, are all okay. Because they had a book, they were sort of vaguely monotheistic, they're just straight. But this is the real book. Um, then you get passages like this, second, second passage here. Um, this is the rewards of heaven. And those who are careful in their duty to their Lord shall be conveyed to the garden and the companies uh, of their friends, essentially. Uh, until when they come to it and his door shall be opened and the keepers of it uh, shall say to them, Peace be on you, you shall be happy. Therefore enter to abide. And they shall say, All praise is due to Allah who has made good to us his promise. And he has made us inherit the land. And we may abide in the garden where we please, so goodly is the reward of the workers. Here's the rewards of heaven. Not surprisingly, it's a garden, right? This is the, the great tradition of the desert peoples, is what does heaven look like? It looks like someplace with water and fruit. You know, this is, this is heaven. Um, but notice again, this is, a, this is given to, this is an afterlife, not a universally popular concept in the ancient world. This is an afterlife delivered to you by Allah. Again, everything flows from Him. It all flows out to you. Um, third example of the kinds of passages you get. This is, by the way, this is a very lovely and much more poetic passage. It's this sort of beautiful resonant passage in, in the Quran. But the third passage is one of the sort of legal passages. Uh, some are even more legalistic than this, but woe to the defrauders who when they take the measure of their dues from men take it fully, but when they measure out to others or weigh out for them, they are deficient. 
Do not these think that they shall be raised again for a mighty day, the day on which men shall stand before the Lord of the worlds? There's lots and lots of passages that say, look, be a decent person. There's a great passage on divorce, it's a little long, I wanted to include it, that basically says, look, if you want to get divorced, okay, but you can't be mean to each other. Be kind, be considerate. You can't just kick her out of the house. That's not acceptable. She has to have a way to live. You can't thrust her out into poverty. You must support her as your means allow. It is not okay. So there's passage after passage of very, like, specifically legalistic. If, if a widow inherits, she inherits two-thirds or two-fifths of the wealth of, of the husband, and the sons will take the other, the rest. I, daughters, I guess, get nothing, uh, which makes sense. Uh, but, but, yeah, but, but this, right, you get very specifically, and in terms of the times, it's a remarkably uh, moderate, friendly um, doctrine. Um, much of the, the, the viciousness that we associate with Islam now is not in, actually, it's not in the Quran. It comes later. The cutting off of hands and these kinds of things, no, not so much. Uh, this, those are later additions. Actually, a lot of that comes from the Persian tradition because uh, they were very big on these kinds of uh, human mutilations. They thought that was great, which comes all the way, by the way, back down from the, the Hammurabi's code. I mean, this is the Persian tradition goes back so far that, I mean, you know, it's back to Hammurabi's code. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You cut off a hand and maybe more because we'd like to. Um, yeah. So this is the Quran. Now, an interesting thing happens if you try and read about this history. One, of course, it's like, you know, it's in this veil of religious sort of nonsense. Uh, but historically, there is now a 200-year gap before we have any other reliable written texts in Arabic. Now, the earliest versions of the Quran that we have demonstrate very clearly that it was probably a coherent book written very near, if not exactly, when they said it was written, which is remarkable. Again, most great texts from the ancient world were these slow accretions of all kinds of things that built up over hundreds of years, and then at some point a bunch of people say, well, this book has always existed exactly like this. For instance, there's estimates that there's like 60,000 versions of the book of Paul. I'm, I'm not making that up. That, that there are so many different transliterations and transcriptions and different uh, versions and pieces and that, that, that literally it's in the tens of thousands. The earlier we go with the books that we can get of the Quran, the more it looks like, well, it really was the first, that's how it more or less as it is today, is pretty much 90 to 95% how it must have appeared when they said it did, which is remarkable. But then there's about a 175, 200 year gap before we start getting other people writing about the life of Muhammad and all the material surrounding this. So this is, this is incredible. This, I mean, again, this is, this is a, a truly remarkable thing because people say, oh, well, we know all this stuff about the life of Muhammad. Well, at a 175 year remove, Sort of, <laughs> right? But, but, it, it's, but tricky. Some of it you can think, well, this seems reasonable, but a lot of it, what he said, all of the material surrounding the book that has built up, which is the basis of Islamic law, very sandy foundations, as it were. It, it, it's, it's much less clear than you might think it would be. So it's important to keep in mind.
Um, so this is this is what happens. So you get the book in about you know it's, it's written. By the way, it takes like twenty years to write. So it's, it's written over twenty years. Um, but so six thirty on, and you get the, the explosive spread of Islam. Um, and as it spreads out, it spreads, of course, uh, the, the religion uh, and the language to a certain extent. Although it takes a while for Arabic to start filtering down to the people because they start, they think, well, we've been conquered like 87 times before. And like all the other conquerors, these guys are just going to go away. Um, in much of the, the, this map of the Dar al-Islam, they never went away. It really took hold. It really sank in. Um, and then, so one thing I want to refer to now, next, sort of in the 750s, is when you start getting more Arabic writing. So again, 120 to 150 years after the death of uh, Muhammad. And one of the earliest texts that we get is the Mu'alaq, by Hamad al-Hrawi. Uh, I'm not doing that very well. I apologize. And what this is, is a collection of pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. So the poetry of the Arabic poets before the coming of Islam. And it's, and it's the writing down of the oral culture. And so if you flip over onto the back here again, um, this is a, a part of a poem from Imru Akhais, who, who we suspect lived around 550 uh, AD. So, so roughly 100 years before the coming of Islam. And this... Poet, poetic tradition and the oral poetic tradition is so strong that his poems are still being recited a hundred plus years later. Well, in this case, actually 200 plus years later. And we have them in several versions from different authors which suggest that they were being recited accurately. We often under, uh, uh, underappreciate the degree to which oral tradition can uh, accurately pass along um, things like poems. They, they took it very seriously. The Arabs took it incredibly seriously. And so if they said they want a poem to be remembered and passed on, it was probably going to be word perfect or very near to word perfect. And so in, in this collection, um, this is a collection of seven poems, uh, poems by the way, uh, by Ar-Rahiyya. Uh, is, is um, Imr al-Qais is just the oldest one, and I think it's, it's one of the loveliest ones. Um, so two, two things here. One, let me give you an example of the opening lines. This is how it's generally translated into English, which is to say poorly. Um, Behold, many pleasant days have I spent with fair women, especially do I remember the day at the pool of Dart il Julul. On that day I killed my riding camel for food for the maidens. Now, this is what I mentioned before. In Arabic, you have many poetic uh, rules that are being followed here, and Ru'alke is being like a model poet. One is every line is perfectly symmetrical rhythmically. So, it, it's, so sort of if it's iambic pentameter, then you'll get maybe you know, 20 counts, pause, 20 counts, and that'll be a line. Every line also rhymes internally. So that the end of the first rhythmic section, and there were various rhythms that you could use, must rhyme with the end of the second rhythmic section, and they both must have precisely the same rhythm. And then those two lines will almost, not always, but usually, most of the time, rhyme with the next two lines. And so you get these sets of 
rhymed couplets that rhyme internally and all have precisely the same rhythm. You, you, like I said, you just can't render this in English because you can't capture the rhythms accurately. We don't have that. We can't break our words up the way they can break them up. I tried for. I took another section of the poem um, and I and I tried to translate it sort of uh, in, into something closer. Um, and the original reads uh, in the English reads something like. Uh, wait, my friends, hold on here. Let's remember my lovers who died. She lived near here, Dakul. She lived in near Hamal, and it was near a, a sandy place. Her camp was seen here, but the sand has blown it away. It's been blown away by the north wind and by the south wind. It's a very literal translation. It's, it's roughly the translation you'll get if you look for English. Um, the, the Arabic reads something vaguely closer to this. Hold my friends, pause to recall. Pause in the line. To cry for my beloved's fall. Pause in the line. Balanced, rhymed. Here was her abode near Dakul, on the edge of a sandy desert before Homul. Balanced and rhymed. The outline of her camp still seen, not wiped out by what has been. As the sand is blown over them by the south wind, all is swept away by the north wind. Wind, wind, bend, bend. Not a very good rhyme, I'm sorry, but the closest I could get, right? Uh, uh, the dakul, hamul, recall, fall, right? You know, recall and dakul, fall and hamul. I mean, this sort of constraint that the Arabic places on an attempt to render it into English is again virtually, I mean, it is impossible. I, I had to cheat on the meter like five times to get it even close. So I haven't really got the meter down. And the rhyme is a near rhyme, not a strong rhyme. They emphasize strong rhymes. What this allows you to do in Arabic, by varying the meter, is to create really strong effects. These balanced lines, that, that one, the, the meter can be uh, very assonant, 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 and then a dissonant conclusion. And boom, it really delivers a blow. Um, and then smooth, you can smooth it out with a smooth rhythm and then balance it. You know, all these sorts of effects we can't get through, which is, which is why it's not just bad translation, but, but what is possible to do in some languages that simply cannot be matched. Um, further, they dropped out all the vowels when they wrote it down, which is cheating. Uh, and, and so this allows them to play all kinds of games. So that the words bread, bride, broad, breed um, all look the same. And so you have to understand that by context that this is a bride and not some bread. And you don't want to make that mistake. Right? Although, of course, you can see the opportunities for um, a double, a triple, a quadruple entendre, which they were uh, spectacular. So now to the poem and its bad rendering. I, 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 I didn't have time to translate whole sections of it. I thought about it, but then I gave up. Oh, and by the way, I used a, a, a French guy from the 19th century who translated a bunch of Arabic poetry into Latin, oddly. Uh, but it's very helpful because the rhythms of Latin are, 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 are great and work a lot better for the Arabic. So between the Arabic, French, and Latin, you sort of get a, a, a sense. Um, Behold how my pleasant days have I spent with fair women, especially do I remember the day at the pool of Darat i Julu. On that day I killed my riding camel for food for the maidens. 
How merry was there dividing my camel's trappings to be carried on their camels. See, that's just terrible. Uh, it is a wonder riddle that the camel being saddled was yet unsaddled. A wonder also was the slaughter, so heedless of myself in this costly gift. Then the maidens commenced throwing the camel's flesh into the kettle. So it's the story that he tells here. Um, where It's actually quite hilarious. He follows this group of maidens out into the desert, and when they stop to bathe in an oasis spring, he sneaks and steals all their clothes. And then he sits there and says, all right, come and get your clothes. And of course, they're like, oh, wait, we can't come out of the pool. And so they're the standoff, which of course he enjoys immensely. Uh, and there's one in particular he has his eye on. Her, her name comes up at the moment. Um, Unaiza. Um, and, and he really wants to, to sleep with her, and so he's like, oh, I'll wait for Naiza to come out. This is going to be great. This is my chance. And then they, they won't come out, and they won't come out, and they say, oh, we're getting hungry. And he goes, oh, well, that's not acceptable. You can't have these fair women become hungry. So he kills his camel to make a feast. Now, you kill your camel when, like, five tribes come together. It's like the, it's like the grandest gesture you can make. It's also unbelievably stupid. Because if you're in the desert without a camel, because you just killed it and ate it, what the hell do you do? Now the women could have ridden off and left him there to die. But they don't because they like him. And by the end of the poem, you like him. Even though he's there stealing their clothes and all this. He's a great guy. Uh, we, we, we like him. Uh, uh, they, they transfer each of his... All the material from his camel, they transfer onto their camels. They break up the load so they can carry it. And then, of course, he rides on the camel with Unaziah, right? Here is his, the one he has his eye on, in the howdah. Now, howdah is those little covered sort of baskets that people ride in on camels, usually elephants, but they also do use them on, on, on camels. We don't, we don't use them a lot. Uh, but but if, if, if we lived in the Arabian desert, we would probably use them more. Uh, but, but So now he gets to ride in the howdah with her. So this plan is working out excellently, right? And so the poem goes on with her saying no, 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 and him saying yes, yes, yes. And of course, it's always yes, yes, yes at the end. And we're very happy for him. Um, but there's this huge tradition of just beautiful poetry with these wonderful stories uh, that I, I find them compelling from hundreds of years uh, of oral tradition that have been translated and saved. Uh, and again, you almost can't find decent translations of them in English. I mean, there's they're sort of these... I, I mean, I, this, I'm sure a fine scholar did this I, you know, I, in, in the 1880s, but boy, they're not very good. Um, the other problem that you run into is that the translations you do get are generally done by academics, and they, they occur in books that cost $400. I kid you not. Um, and, and their emphasis is on accuracy to the original text, which is all correct when you're trying to do scholarship, rather than beauty. Um, and so, you know, we, we, the, the, for Persian, because of the Sufi tradition, there's been a, a lot of uh, investment and bringing that small slice of the Persian tradition into English with an emphasis on the beauty and the possibility of, of, of what you could achieve. This has not really happened so much with the Arabic yet. So this is, this is a, a, I think, a major lack that we have. But, but hopefully someday this will happen. Um, so that was 750. And then 762, so that's when the first collection of the pre-Islamic uh, poets of, of, of Arabia, which is also, say, the pre-literate poets, the, the poets were around before the texts were written, comes out. And then there's a bunch. And by the way, when I say bunch, I mean 
hundreds of thousands of pages of Arabic poetry, right? So they, they have a lot. Um, and in 762 to 1258, you get the uh, Islamic Golden Age, as it's called. This is the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, and this is, uh, uh, settles in Baghdad. It's originally someplace else, Hamas, I think. But anyway, it ends up after like five years, they, they move the, the caliphate to, to Baghdad and they recreate right next to Babylon, which you want to do, right? You want to build a capital next to the old capital, but better and more beautiful and more powerful. Uh, and so that's what they do. Now this is important. If anything else about Arabic we should know is the translation movement of the Islamic Golden Age. Where did we get the Greek and Roman texts that we know today as part of the Western heritage? A primary bridge, I mean primary bridge, 60-70% of these texts come from this period of the Abbasid Caliphate and what's called the translation movement. Millions and millions of dollars were spent hiring translators, gathering texts, and translating them, often through intermediary languages, into Arabic. And then, crucially, commenting on them. So if you think of what's going on in the traditional Western world, sort of the European lands, um, between 750 and 1258, it's not really impressive. Uh, they, we did some starvation, uh, we did some plagues, that was fun. Uh, we had the Merovingians. By the way, if you ever want to read some great history, read about the Merovingians, who were just a really nasty lot of people. Uh, not promoting culture, mostly promoting the death of all their relatives. Um, you know, it, it was not coherent, it wasn't organized, um, libraries being burnt, uh, whole communities being exterminated, suspicion of scholars. It was not good. At the same time, we call sometimes our dark ages. The, the Abbasid Caliphate is absolutely this glowing uh, miracle of civilization. Greek, Latin, Persian works are being translated into the Arabic and then sent around through the entire Arab world, through the Dar al-Islam. Out it goes, because now they're available and translated. Um, I, I, said, I don't know how many works, there would be vast numbers of work we would probably not have in any other form if they had not been saved. So for about four or five hundred years, um, centered in Babylon, our tradition was being kept alive. Um, where? It was being kept alive by Islamic scholars uh, in, in Baghdad. Oddly enough, but true. When the Abbasid Caliphate starts to sort of soften, and the scholars start to leave, one of the things that happens is this influence spreads into the Renaissance. What the Renaissance is, is the outflowing particularly from Cordoba in Spain, which was uh, you know, the, the, the occupied by the Islam for, for many years. Um, but also the texts are coming out now. The Arab scholars are starting to migrate and travel around. The ambassadors are, 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 are traveling around. In fact, it's, it's great to read some of the surviving ambassadorial letters from sort of the courts of the Carolingians or, or, or whatnot when they go to visit Cordoba. And then they show up and they're like, Dear King, never coming home again. Huh. <laughs> right? Where I, I believe at that time, that in, in, I believe it was in Charlemagne's reign that the tallest building they had was four stories um, at the court. And they went to Cordoba, and the ambassador, maybe a little earlier, and he goes into Cordoba where they had much taller buildings, but they had street lights, they had sanitation, they had gardens everywhere. I mean, you just basically left a mud pit 
And you walk in like the Garden City with literally that street lights at night, and, you know, guards, and it was safe and uh, and pleasant. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is civilization. So those texts, those models, those scholars, they also created uh, dictionaries, grammars, all the tools you need. So that when you do find other ancient texts off in your monasteries, how can you translate them? Where do you get these dictionaries? Ah, they, they pre-exist. They've already been created. Mathematics is advanced. All uh, um, optics is advanced. Medicine is advanced remarkably during this, during this period. And so it's this high watermark that maintains and protects and nourishes and in fact improves the tradition from the Greeks and Romans that is then passed on into what becomes a renaissance, which was timely because in 1258, that's of course when the Mongols came in to burn down everything. Um, unpleasant people. Um, so uh, you get the Mongol invasion, Islamic Golden Age comes to an end, but the, the tradition of scholarship does not stop. Like I said, there's so much to choose from, so I'm just trying to pick a few things. Uh, but one person we should know better is Ibn Khaldun, uh, 1332-1406, and around Tunisia, Tunis, this area. He traveled around a lot trying to find a job. He wasn't very good at that. Bit of a schemer. Uh, wherever he went, he always sort of tried to team up with the youngest son of the caliph and to off the caliph. And then if that guy's in power, then I'm the vizier. Life is good. So he kept getting in prison and you know making enemies and, and, and then having to move along. Uh, how he didn't get killed, I don't know. But he was an adventurer and a schemer. But he was also probably the greatest historian of the ancient world, uh, including Herodotus and Thucydides. Um, he was... He, Probably the first clear sociologist, um, great economic scholar. Um, people know that the British historian uh, Toynbee said there is no one in the ancient world who is, even bears mentioning in the same breath as Ibn Khaldun, and there's almost no one in the modern world. This is the respect they had for him. Anytime you read anything about the history of um, the Arab world, the Islamic world, in the period from, say, 600 to Ibn Khaldun's death, without knowing it, that scholar, if he's any scholar at all, is simply quoting whole sections of Ibn Khaldun at you. Because he is the primary source for vast areas of our historical knowledge of this period uh, and this geographic area. Extremely astounding, but a great thinker. Uh, you know, he, he recognized things like, wow, Taxing people is good. If you tax them too much, they stop working and you get less tax rates. So don't do that. Um, this, we think of this as a modern idea. It wasn't a modern idea. Ben Khaldun came up with this, you know, roughly in, you know, in the 15th century, early 15th century. Um, I, I mean, his, his achievements go on and on. Amazing. Prologamena has been is probably his most commonly read work in English. His entire works have never been translated into English, which is remarkable. They only became really widely known in the English world because, again, a French translator translated them into French in the 1880s. Or a little earlier than that, I take that back, the 1840s, I believe. And then people said, wow, where did you get this material? Like, oh, they've been Khaldun. He's got a bunch of pages of this stuff. Um, but still not as well known as he should be. So there's these people out there like Ibn Khaldun. Um, then jumping ahead... Uh, to 1850 to 1950. I mean, again, I, I don't know how what to keep in and what to throw out, so we'll just jump ahead. Um, you get the Ahnada, the awakening, the Renaissance. Um, so who shows up in 1800 in Egypt? Ha, 
It's Napoleon. It was a bit of a surprise. Um, as generally, he spread chaos wherever he went, and uh, this was no exception. So the encounters between the Western world, the European world, and the, the, the House of Islam is increasing. Europe is gaining strength. The empire is pressing out, and these encounters will go up and up and up, and then all of a sudden one day here comes Napoleon. You're like, wow, where did you come from? What are you doing here? Please go away. Stop messing things up. Um, and he does, which was sort of good. But, but it, it caused a shock to run through uh, the, the Islamic world, particularly the Egyptian world. And they started reading European texts, and they started looking at European novels, and they started uh, translating more material into Arabic. They started, more people started learning the European languages. And this has been called, again, this has been called the, the awakening, where, where new forms are tried out, new poetry is being written, new types of history. Um, but this also begins a strong fissure with Islam, because many of the forms that are coming, of course, if you're coming in the 1800s, are from the Enlightenment. Ooh, the realistic novel, by the way, which we just take for granted, is an amazing breakthrough. Because it says the world as it actually is is interesting and okay, and we should write about it as it is. This is this is this is a, this is a direct result of the Enlightenment going. Hey, no, we don't have to put everything within the gloss of religion. We can just sort of deliver the people as they are. It doesn't have to be something uplifting. It doesn't have to be something that teaches. It doesn't have to be morally refined. And so all these conflicts begin, which are still, by the way, playing out um, in, in the Arab world, not surprisingly. Um, and then uh, moving in, in 1988, Nagut Mahfouz wins a Nobel Prize for Literature, first Arabic writer to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, as I was reading about this, uh, I don't know if anybody's read, he's most famous for his trilogy of this family that lives in Cairo. It's, it's quite entertaining again. I don't know how well it holds up in English. It's fine, but it doesn't seem great. But in, in, in uh, Egypt, in the Arab world, it was groundbreaking. Uh, he was a, they, they attempted to assassinate him um, because of, of, of some... It wasn't particularly blasphemous to us. But again, this notion is in 1988 that you would represent the real world um, and, and raise questions about things like Allah and, and the way society is run will we'll get you blacklisted and will get you attempted to be killed. Right, um, is is one of the flowerings of the awakening, if you will. But it, but it is a lovely story. It is is a great uh, trilogy of, of just a family living and growing in a dynamic place like Cairo. Um, and I can I recommend it like Ibn Khaldun's work, like much of the poetry. For nothing else, it, it, it expresses the richness, the cultural variety, the amazing. Uh, social and literary and linguistic heritage that is the Arabic world. I mean, it, it is, is Arabic is on top in Egypt, of course, whatever, 5,000 years of pre-existing civilization. And that's still there, and it's still bubbling up, and there's all these tensions um, that go on. And so it's astounding. And then I thought, well, it should bring us up to today, because, again, 440 million or so Arabic speakers in the world hugely literate, incredibly well-educated, um, but also, again, under the, primarily under the sway of Islam, which is the, the, it's pre-Reformation. They haven't had enlightenment per se. That's really shaken that, uh, that controlling sphere of religion. And when someone like Mufuz comes along and tries to do that, they threaten to kill him or they actually kill him. 
Um, many authors of fleeing. If anybody's read Teaching um, Something Nabokov in Teaching Nabokov in Tehran, that was the name of the book, lovely book about someone trying to teach literature in Tehran. Turns out, really, you can't do it um, because it's revolutionary to them, which is crazy, particularly in Iran, because they've got one of the great literary histories. <laughs> I mean, they've got their literary heritage in the world, but it, it, you know, even that is controversial and dangerous. Um, so today, uh, I don't know if people have heard of the archaeological um, discoveries in Timbuktu. So if we go back to the Abbasid Caliph and the, and the height of, of the Islamic Golden Age, there was sort of a fall and then a bit of a, of a renaissance a little bit later after the Mongols sort of dwindled away. And, and one of the things they did is they reached out into a place like Mali. And Mali in the 15th and 16th century, not exactly a center of the world, but they had some schools. It's estimated that in the 1450s to 1500s there were 25,000 students working in Timbuktu. Think about it, 25,000 students. That's a, practically a UW, right? In the ancient world, this is an unheard of density of scholars. <coughs> then various wars and things happen. Timbuktu takes a huge nosedive um, and sort of falls off the face of the earth to the point where it is, in fact, the name of faces that are off the face of the earth, right? <laughs> Anything that's far away and unknown and insignificant is Timbuktu. This is how we refer to it. But all those works did not go away. Many, many, many of them, over a hundred thousand of them, were preserved by the scholastic families for generations, for hundreds of years. In the 19, late 60s and early 70s, uh, some scholars, particularly French because of their involvement in colonial North Africa in this area, um, started to realize, like, oh my God, these are texts from the 13th century. These are, not, these are ancient, rare manuscripts. Some of the earliest versions of the Quran that we have are, are, are from Timbuktu in the schools in Mali. And so they started looking around. The more they look around, the more they find. And they start going to people's houses and saying, well, we've heard you're a, you know, you're a family of scholars. And, and by the way, this is just a heritage that they've, they've held on to because mostly in Timbuktu, you're starving to death. I mean, this is it, it, incredibly poor. Um, all their trade routes have died. <clears throat> the population today is probably 120th of what it was in the 14th century. But they still have this heritage <clears throat> that our, we were a family of scholars. We were learned people. And they would, literally, they would come to people's houses and say, well, we're looking for books. Do you have any books? And they're like, oh, yes. We've been hiding them. And they'd go in their kitchens or something and pull up stones and dig away the sand, and there would be 500 books from the 14th century. And, and it, you know, of course, scholars are just passing out. Right? You just drop dead. If you're a scholar, you just fall. You're like, oh, my God. Uh, and so in, in Mali today, in Timbuktu, there's a, it's a World Heritage Site now, uh, and there's a teeny tiny scholastic effort to try and catalog and preserve and translate these texts. Now, on one hand, it's it, it important how... And some of these texts, by the way, are in African languages. Some of these texts are the only known texts we have in, Afri in these African languages. Also, when you have a 13th century Arabic text from Mali, many of them are translations of earlier African works that people thought did not exist. Right? Africa, the dark continent, the continent without writing. 
ha ha, we found the writing, or we found the translations of the writing, or we found the records of the oral histories that were told throughout Africa for a thousand years before. I mean, it's truly one of the most remarkable, I mean, it's just awe-inspiring, this, this discovery. Couple of problems. One, it's in Mali. <laughs> no one wants to go to Mali. They have a tendency to kidnap you when you go there um, and, 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 and then kill you out in the desert. So this is sort of a bit of off-putting to many scholars. They think, you know, I do not wish to go to Mali and Timbuktu and be kidnapped and shot. It's true, true, and this happens consistently. Um, second problem is, how many medieval Arabists do we have? Not a lot. How many medieval Arabists do we have who want to stop doing whatever they're doing in some place that probably has air conditioning and refrigeration and fly to the middle of nowhere, Timbuktu, literally, and do this incredibly difficult, challenging, dangerous intellectual task? Answer, almost none, most of them French. Why? I mean, I mean, it would be as if someone dug up the Library of Alexandria, except for we have records from the ancient Greek world. We don't have records from this part of Africa. We shrug our shoulders. We go, eh, that's nice. A hundred thousand manuscripts, documents, books, texts. But that's a bunch of Arabic crap, right? I mean, this is kind of the, this is all in some language we don't care about. It, 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 I, I don't know, it, 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 it's both maddening and glorious because it's, it's one of the great archaeological discoveries. Is if you said 50 years ago to scholars that this was going to happen, they would say, no, this is this, that's just a dream. These texts don't exist. If they did exist, they died in the sand 300 years ago. Because again, these are texts that were preserved by families who, with, with almost no resources for three or four or 500 years. I mean, this wasn't a little teeny tiny achievement. This was an extraordinary achievement. Um, and uh, so far they've cataloged, they estimate, like 2 or 3% of the texts. But again, the problem with the Arab-Islam struggle is many of the Islamic uh, extremists in Mali do not want those texts to exist. Uh, and so they attack the scholars, they try to burn the libraries, they shell them any time they get near these cities. So I don't know if people know that France reinvaded Mali. That this, I don't know. France has to invade Africa every 10 years. It's a rule. If they aren't invading an African country every 10 years, that, I, don't know, I don't know, something goes wrong. And so they, they, they just, there they go. Right? It was a coat to ivory a few years ago, which turned out very well, uh, and, and now it's Mali. Um, but one of the things they did immediately was surround and protect Timbuktu. Not because it has any strategic importance. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's because it has one of the great literary heritages of the entire world. And we need to catalog it and document it and photocopy it and make it available to scholars all over the world for translation. I mean, nobody knows what's there. Um, we, it, it's, it's just this, this opportunity. But I think it highlights a couple of things that, that, we, that we've talked about. One, that the richness of the Arabic tradition, I mean, 25,000 students in the 15th century in the distant reaches of Africa. That was made possible by the respect for learning that the Arabic tradition has. 
to the reach. If you look on the map, Mali is way down there, right? I mean, it's, it's a vast cultural enterprise. And it's been going on for a fair amount of time. The continuing cultural influence and potentially huge cultural influence, if these texts are translated and if these texts work the way we hope they do and what some of the materials are that we hope to find, then it will revolutionize um, our understanding of this area and this period of history. Truly remarkable. Uh, by the way, there may be Greek classics that we thought were lost that are still extant there in Arabic translations. We just don't know. But finally is the continuing struggle within the House of Islam, where you have a faction of the civilization itself which is at war with its own history. It wants to eliminate the works. It, want, it does not want people to have access to it. There is only one way to read the Quran. There is only one correct history of the development of, of, of Islam. There is one law. And until you accept it and believe in it, we're, we're just gonna we're gonna have trouble. We're gonna keep fighting. So I don't know. So this is, it's this really mixed bag between this incredibly rich, conflicted, uh, and and uh, ancient literary tradition and civilization, combined with a struggle that is both internal to Islam today and, and Arabic, therefore, and also one between us. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know where this will go. It's going to be fascinating, but we'll, we'll get to go there, I hope, and see what happens. So thank you. Arabic, Arabic, language of the